Good morning. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to Colossians chapter 2. And as you turn there, uh, I'd like to ask all of the exceptional Christians to please stand up. (laughs) Will all the really, really good Christians please stand up? Now, I noticed that none of you stood, and I didn't actually expect you to, because I think the reason you didn't stand, besides the fact that it would have been awkward if you did, but the reason you didn't stand is because it's hard to define what a good Christian is. I mean, one could say that a good Christian is someone who loves God's Word. It can also be someone who loves to pray. It's someone who serves others, loves others, and is devoted to the local church. I think a good Christian is simply someone who loves Jesus, and it shows by the way they live their lives. But what about someone who is covered with tattoos and piercings? Or what if he or she has a tattered past, a rough background? Does that person fit the image of what a good Christian should look like? Or what about this? What if the person goes to a church you're not crazy about? I mean, they're biblically faithful, but you're not crazy about how they do things. And they don't come to the same convictions as you. Does that person fit the image of what a good Christian should look like? Well, depending on how we answer this, it might reveal a bias in our hearts. A legalistic tendency where we judge people on the basis of our opinions. Opinions that have nothing to do with Scripture. Now, this tendency was also present in the first century. You see, uh, there were certain individuals who had come into the Colossian church. And they were saying that if you want to be a good Christian, you have to follow our rules. You must comply with our man-made rules. Now, they weren't denying Jesus, but by adding extra biblical rules to their faith, they were essentially saying that Jesus wasn't enough, that he wasn't sufficient. Well, if you've been paying attention as we've been going through Colossians, you know that the Apostle Paul is having none of that. In his letter, Paul asserts that Jesus is enough, that he is sufficient, not just for salvation, but for every aspect of our Christian life. You see, Paul wants the Colossians to know, and he wants you to know, that if you have Jesus, You have everything you need. Go to Colossians 2, verses 16 to 23. That's our text, Colossians 2, 16 to 23, as we continue our series in the book of Colossians. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Would you pray with me? 
Our God and our Heavenly Father, would you sanctify us in the truth? Your word is truth. God, open our eyes today to behold wonderful things in this passage. God, I pray that there would be a simplicity to this sermon so that we might see the supremacy of your Son and that we might know the freedom that we have in him. And Lord, above all, would you give us a greater love for Jesus Christ, that he might reign supreme in our hearts. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as you all know, the point of the Bible is Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the subject of the scriptures. And as you also know, the point of Colossians is that Jesus is sufficient. He is sufficient for living the Christian life. Now, here in chapter 2, Paul has been teaching us about how to live in the gospel. Uh, Having laid out the gospel in chapter 1, he now shows us how to live in light of the gospel. But before he describes what the gospel-centered life looks like, uh, he first shows us what it doesn't look like. And that's what he does here in verses 16 to 23. You see, according to Paul, the Christian life does not look like what the false teachers were promoting. The false teaching, which was made of various legalistic rules, was thought to be the path to true spirituality. And the idea was that if you follow these rules, it was a sure sign that you were a good Christian. In fact, it was a sure sign that you were an exceptional Christian. But here's Paul's argument. Paul's argument is that true spirituality can never be found by merely following rules. It can only be found by holding fast to Jesus Christ. And so what he does here is he gives the Colossians three ways to respond to the false teachers. Uh, three things they should do in response to their teaching. So first he says, don't let them judge you. Don't let the false teachers judge you. Second, he says, don't let them disqualify you. And then third, don't submit to their rules. So don't let them judge you. Don't let them disqualify you and don't submit to their rules. Three ways to respond to the false teachers. First, don't let them judge you. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, up to this point, Paul had always spoke of the false teaching in general terms without going into much detail. Back in verse 8, he said that it was according to human tradition and that it was according to the elemental spirits of the world, but not according to Christ. But here in verse 16, he begins to unpack some of the specific aspects of the false teaching. But before I explain this, let me say something about the phrase, let no one pass judgment. You know, there is no phrase more often quoted by both believers and unbelievers than the phrase, don't judge. I mean, I think it's remarkable how so many unbelievers know the Bible says don't judge, right? Matthew 7 says, judge not or you too will be judged. And by the way, Christians use this phrase all the time too. In fact, I caught myself saying it the other day. So I was online for food during Wednesday night worship and someone made a comment about how much food I had on my plate. What did I say? Don't judge. Don't judge me. But you see, Paul is not saying that a Christian should never be judged, that a Christian should never be rebuked or admonished or even be subject to church discipline. That is not what Paul is saying at all. In fact, the point of this very letter is to judge. It's to judge the false teachers. And so when it comes to passing judgment in the church, the Bible is clear. 
Christians are to judge. And one example is in the case of unrepentant sin in the lives of our members. You see, when based on the clear teaching of Scripture, there is open and unrepentant sin, Christians are to judge. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 18. He says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So you see, when someone's life contradicts their profession of faith, when it contradicts the gospel, Christians are to judge. Well, okay, so then why does Paul say, let no one pass judgment? Well, let me tell you why. You see, Paul believes that the Colossians shouldn't be judged because the false teachers were going beyond the teaching of Scripture. They were making up rules that were not in Scripture and then insisting that those who did not comply were either unspiritual or unsaved. Now, what rules were they talking about? Well, first we see that there were rules having to do with their diet. There were questions of food and drink. Now, we don't exactly know what Paul is referring to by food and drink. Uh, Perhaps the false teachers were drawing from the Old Covenant dietary laws, uh, the kosher laws from Leviticus 11. And there could also be a mix of pagan elements, because with the exception of the Nazarite vows, if you're familiar with that, from number six, there really are no Jewish laws about drinking. But whatever he's talking about, it's clear the false teachers wanted them to abstain from certain foods. And we know this because of what he says in verse 21. Look at verse 21. In verse 21, he quotes the false teachers as saying, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Right? This is a direct quote of the false teachers. So, so do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch certain foods. Now, this is more than just like avoiding carbs or staying away from processed foods. No, no, no. They were saying that there were certain foods that were spiritually unclean. And so if you want to be a good Christian, you must abstain from these foods. You must avoid them altogether. Now, uh, it also says here that the false teaching was with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Now, there is no doubt about this. This is a reference to the holy days of the Jewish calendar, uh, specifically the yearly, the monthly, and the weekly observances of Israel. So, for example, the festivals here refer to the yearly ones, like the Passover. And then the new moon refers to the monthly observances. And then the Sabbath refers to the weekly observances. So you have the yearly, the monthly, and the weekly observances of Israel. So if you put it all together, uh, this is what the false teachers were saying. That unless you avoid certain foods, and unless you observe certain holy days, you're probably not saved. Or at the very least, you're not a very good Christian. Now, what's wrong with adding a few more rules? I mean, adding rules creates a safety net, right? Because if you put a safety net or a fence around God's law, it seems like it would be harder to sin. What's wrong with adding a few more rules? Let me give you two reasons. The first reason is that when you add to God's law, you run the risk of replacing God's law, which is exactly what the Pharisees did in Mark chapter 7. You remember that story? 
in Mark 7, when Jesus said that they left the commandment of God in order to hold to the traditions of men. So the Pharisees ended up replacing God's commandments with their own traditions. So that's the first reason why it's wrong to add more rules. You run the risk of replacing God's word with your own traditions. Now, the second reason is because everything these rules symbolized and everything they foreshadowed has been fulfilled by Christ. You see, these rules were given for a purpose. They were given to Israel to teach them about holiness. Right? That's what the food laws were for. And then the festivals were given to teach them about salvation and to prepare them for the coming of Christ. But to require these things after Christ has come is an attack on the sufficiency of Christ. It's saying that Christ wasn't enough. It's saying that his death wasn't enough and that his resurrection wasn't enough. It's basically saying that we need more than the salvation Jesus offers by faith and by faith alone. This is why in verse 17, Paul says that they're just shadows They're shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Friends, what are shadows for if not to point to a reality? And that reality is Christ. Hebrews 10 verse 1 says, The law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Friends, that reality is Christ. So let me ask you this. Are you living in the shadows? Are you living in the shadows? And what I mean by that is not, are you living in the Old Testament? But what I mean is, do you add rules to your life to make yourself more acceptable to God? Let me ask you this. What makes someone acceptable to God? Is it faith in the finished work of Christ? Or is it faith plus something else? For example, faith plus morality or faith plus religious practices. What do you need to make yourself more acceptable to God? Friends, Paul wants you to know that you need nothing else because in Christ, you have everything you need. He is everything you need for your acceptance before God. And if Christ is everything you need, then don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone judge you based on rules that are not in Scripture. And likewise, don't judge yourself. Don't consider yourself to be unsaved or unspiritual because you don't comply with man-made rules. You know, some of you live in the shadows. You live under the burden of requirements that you've imposed on yourself, requirements that are not in Scripture. And some of you also live under the burden of expectations from others, whether it's cultural expectations or familial expectations or even expectations from your friends in church. That's a lot of burden. So won't you come out of the shadows? Come out of the shadows because Christ has set you free. Christ is everything you need for your acceptance before God, and he's everything you need to resist those who would judge you based on man-made rules. This is the freedom we have in Christ. So the question is this. Do you know him? Do you know his love? And do you know his forgiveness? Do you truly have Jesus Christ? Because if you have him, you have everything you need. That's point number one, don't let them judge you. Now, point number two is don't let them disqualify you. In light of everything you have in Christ, don't let any of those false teachers disqualify you. 
Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. (coughs) Now, let me tell you about the word disqualify. Uh, The word disqualify refers to a negative judgment rendered by an umpire during a game. Okay, so as the father of someone who plays Little League Baseball, uh, I've seen many games where both players and coaches get disqualified, right? They get kicked out of the game by the umpire. Now, I am biased because when it happens to my son's team, I I feel like they're really unfair, (laughs) right? I feel like these umpires just have it out for you, all right? So this season, Nathan had a game where all of his coaches were kicked out of the game. We had no coaches left, and so we had to forfeit the game because all of our coaches were disqualified. So what Paul is saying here is this. Don't let the false teachers kick you out of the game. Don't let them disqualify you. When it comes to your faith, stay in the game. Keep going in your walk with Jesus. I mean, let's remember what Paul has already said in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 12, he tells them that the Father has qualified you. That because of Christ, God the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. So so don't let them disqualify you. That's what Paul is saying. Now, what were they trying to disqualify them for? Well, let me give you some of the other things they were promoting. Number one, they insist on asceticism. They were insisting on or promoting something called asceticism. Now, asceticism, it refers to an extreme form of self-denial. And the purpose of this self-denial is to produce a spiritual experience. So it is well known that those who practice asceticism, they would employ an extreme form of fasting where you would starve yourself for weeks in order to produce an ecstatic spiritual experience. Uh, Later on, Paul will actually connect asceticism with what he calls severity to the body. Look at what he says in verse 23. He says, these things, uh, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. So you see, they weren't just avoiding certain foods. They were, but they were starving themselves. They were seeking spiritual experiences through an extreme form of fasting. So Paul says, don't let them disqualify you on the basis of these experiences. Don't let them disqualify you on the basis of whether or not you've had these experiences. And the reason Paul can say this is because your Christian walk is not dependent on mere experience. Now, how do we apply this to our context today? Uh, Asceticism is not something that's popular today. Unless you're a monk. Is there anyone here who's a monk? Never know, it's New York City. So if you're not a monk, then you're not going to be practicing asceticism. But let me ask you this. In what ways do you try to foster a deeper spirituality? In other words, how do you grow closer to God? Do you grow closer to God through the means of grace? The means of grace are the biblically prescribed means God gives us to grow us in his grace. For example, do you grow closer to God through his word? Through reading and studying and sitting under the preaching of God's word? And do you get get closer to God when you go to church? I hope you do. I hope you grow closer to God when you assemble with the people of God for worship and for encouragement and for accountability. And you get closer to God through prayer. 
You see, these things are the means of grace. God's word, God's church, and prayer. Or do you try to get closer to God through subjective emotional experiences? You know, it is really easy to become a slave to your subjective emotional experiences. Uh, There have been times in my life when I felt that something was wrong with me because I didn't have the same experience as someone else. And there have also been times when I thought that something was wrong with me because I didn't have the same experience that I once did before. Have you ever felt that way? Here's the thing. Our faith is not based on subjective experience. It's based on an objective reality. It's based on the objective reality of the gospel. And friends, the gospel is true even if you don't feel it. So let your walk be driven by the gospel. Don't pursue mere subjective experiences. Instead, pursue Christ. Number two, the false teachers were also insisting on the worship of angels. Uh, They were insisting on the worship of angels. Now, I don't think that they were actually worshiping angels like the way we worship God. You see, the word worship can also mean to invoke. So I think that the Colossians were actually invoking angels. They were calling upon angels for help. Not for matters of salvation, of course, but for help with their problems in life. Commentator David Garland says that pagan cults in Asia Minor regarded angels as either hostile, needing appeasement, or as benevolent, bestowing blessings. In other words, there were bad angels whom you had to appease, and then there were good angels who could bless you. That's what the Colossians believed. And so the Colossians would pray to the good angels to ask for their help, and then they would pray to the bad ones to ward off their evil. Now, setting aside the really bad theology here, you know, what they were doing was that they were turning to angels for the kind of help that they should be seeking from God alone. That's essentially what they were doing. Now, how do we apply this today? I mean, nobody talks about angels anymore. I'm pretty sure that none of you are praying to angels. But let me ask you, who do you go to for help? Where do you turn for help? Where do you go when you're lonely and afraid? Where do you go when you're depressed or anxious? Where do you turn for help? Because, brothers and sisters, where you turn reveals who or what you trust in. So, friends, do you turn to Christ? Do you look to Christ? Do you see the trials in your life as just another way to glorify Christ? You see, what Paul's been saying over and over in this entire letter is don't depend on anything else. And don't look to anything else. Look to Christ, because Christ is everything you need. Number three, the false teachers were going on in detail about visions. So they were insisting on asceticism, they were invoking angels, and now he says that they were going on in detail about visions. So it is well known that those who practice asceticism, uh, they would often starve themselves to the point of having hallucinations. And then these hallucinations would be interpreted as a vision from God. And then they would go on in detail about these visions because that was their claim to authority. You know, that's the thing about visions, right? No one can ever challenge someone who said that they've had a vision, right? I've had a vision, prove me wrong. You can't. Here's the thing. Special revelation in the form of visions, dreams, and prophecy, I believe, have ceased since the completion of Scripture. We're no longer dependent on them because we now have the inspired and inerrant word of God. 
So don't let anyone disqualify you on the basis of visions. Now, what does all of this produce? This this legalistic requirement of, of asceticism, angels, and visions, what does it produce? Well, like other forms of legalism, it, it, it produces pride. It nurtures our pride. Have you ever wondered why anybody would ever want to be legalistic? I mean, nobody likes legalistic people. Why would anybody ever want to be legalistic? Well, it's because it, it nurtures our pride. It makes us feel good about ourselves, right? I mean, look at how much I can fast. Look at all the rules I can keep. Look at all these visions that I'm getting from God. I am a good Christian. Legalism puffs a person up with pride. Case in point, the false teachers. Paul says here that they were puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds. Now, have you ever had to deal with someone who is puffed up with pride? Maybe like your boss at work, or maybe like a Yankee fan. (laughs) And you know what's worse than dealing with someone who is puffed up with pride? The only thing worse than that is someone who is puffed up and has no reason for being so. At least Yankee fans have something to be prideful about, right? And that's what legalism produces, people who are puffed up without reason. And and what happens to people who are puffed up without reason? Well, they become severed from Christ. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says that they do not hold fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. They do not hold fast to the head. So in their pursuit of experiences, the false teachers have been severed from the head. They've severed themselves from Christ himself. You see, as the head of the church, Jesus is the one who feeds us. He's the one who nourishes us. He's the one who who knits us together, and he grows us with a growth that is from God. True spiritual growth in the church comes from being connected to the head. And so what legalism does is that it moves you away from Christ. Whether it's legalism in the form of rules or legalism in the form of the expectation of experiences, it moves you away from Christ. You cannot hold fast to the head and hold on to legalism. Because if you yield to legalism, you lose the gospel. Friends, we can do this in our church. If we, as a church, yield to legalism, we will lose the gospel will become severed from Christ. So don't let anyone disqualify you based on your experiences. And under no circumstances should you disqualify yourself. Instead, hold fast to the head. Stay devoted to Jesus Christ. This brings us to my last point, point number three. Don't submit to their rules. Don't submit to their rules. In light of everything you have in Christ, Don't submit to any of their rules. Look at verse 20. He says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? So I still remember the first time I heard someone say, You're dead to me. I was in high school, and two of my friends were breaking up. And so the girl said to her now ex-boyfriend, You are dead to me. Now, when I heard this, I thought, you know, that's really over the top. Do you you really wish that he was dead? But later I learned what she meant. She meant that you no longer have any power over me. Uh, You no longer have a controlling influence over me. Uh, We're breaking up, and I am done with this relationship, which I thought was appropriate. 
Now, what does this have to do with verse 20? Well, you see, as a Christian, a Christian is someone who has died with Christ, right? You guys all know this. Because of your union with Christ, you have died with Christ. But those who have died with Christ have also died to the world. They've been liberated from the elemental spirits of the world. The elemental spirits are the demonic powers that rule our fallen world. So it's as if the world is dead to you. It no longer has any power over you. And so the logical question that Paul asks here is, why do you still submit to its rules? Why submit to the legalistic rules that the world requires? So recently, uh, my former boss, who now works for another company, works for another hospital, called me to ask me how I was doing. And it was really strange because during the phone call, he started to transition, like he, he started to give me things to do as if he was still my boss. You know, make this, make this spreadsheet, do that, do that. You know what was really strange? I listened to him. I did exactly what he told me to do. And so this is what Paul is saying. If these rules no longer have any power over you, why are you still submitting? If they're dead to you, why submit to their rules? Don't submit to any of their rules. Now, what does Paul say about these rules and regulations in these last two verses? Well, in in these last two verses, he basically summarizes much of what he's already said. And he does this in four parts. First, he says that they all perish as they are used. Look at verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. So you see, these rules, these, these old covenant ceremonial laws, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, they were not made to last. They were temporary. They're sort of like our cell phones. I just learned about this the other week. Did you know that our cell phones are not made to last? It's something called program obsolescence. So at some point, you can't fix them anymore because they're not made to last. So likewise, these old covenant laws were not made to last. They were made to perish as they are used. Now, second, he says that they were according to human precepts and teachings. They were according to human precepts and teachings. So they don't come from God. They come from man-made ideas. You know, there are a lot of man-made ideas in the world that are good ideas, right? Like some of our laws, they're good. But when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to the things of God, they are worthless. They're according to human precepts and teaching. Third, he says that they have an appearance of wisdom. This is verse 23. He says, they have indeed an appearance of wisdom. So you see, their rules make them appear wise. It makes them appear holy. It makes them appear, these experiences make them look spiritual. But Paul reminds us here that appearances are deceiving. Okay, let's take a vote. Let's take a poll. Uh, Which of these two men is more spiritual? Is it the first guy? Is it this guy who, who observes strict rules and he practices asceticism and he's extremely disciplined and he denies himself of many of life's pleasures? Is it that guy? Or is it this guy? <laughs> now I notice I didn't say who looks more spiritual. I said who is more spiritual? Who is more spiritual? The answer is Cade McDonald. (laughs) Cade wins in a landslide, right? So you see, appearances are deceiving. Because if you were to poll the rest of the world, they would say it's the Dalai Lama. 
right? The Dalai Lama appears more spiritual. He appears more wise and he appears to be holy. But God says it's Cade. Why is that? Because Cade has Christ. And Christ makes all the difference in the world. Self-denial and self-discipline without Christ is worthless. But if you have Christ, you have everything you need for wisdom and holiness. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, or holiness. Lastly, he says that they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's the end of verse 23. They have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And this is what I want to focus on for the rest of the sermon. The fact that everything the false teachers are throwing at the Colossians, right, rules about diets and days and experiences and angels and visions, all of these things are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Friends, do you know what it means to have no value? I was cleaning out my garage because I have all sorts of junk there, things that are, are useless to me. And you know, Kelly, my wife, she, she, got, she got on some consignment sale and she, she made like $400 from my junk, right? You know, one man's junk is really another man's treasure. It was amazing. But Paul says that what the false teachers had was of no value. It was totally worthless. Now, before I go on, let me say something about asceticism or self-denial. You know, some of us could use a little bit more self-denial, given that we live in such indulgence. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says this. He says, I discipline my body and keep it under control. I discipline my body and keep it under control. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be dominated by anything. So you see, Paul practices a self-denial, a self-denial that's based on Scripture and seeks to put sin to death. But that is not what is happening in Colossae. What is happening has nothing to do with Christian sanctification. And so when it comes to producing holiness, it just doesn't work. Let me give you two reasons why following legalistic rules don't work when it comes to producing holiness. The first reason why it can't stop the indulgence of the flesh is because it is indulgence of the flesh. Legalism indulges our pride. It nurtures our pride. It's like taking a bath in mud. Why am I not getting clean? Because you're bathing in mud. You cannot stop indulgence with more indulgence. Now, the second reason why it doesn't work is because none of these things can fix the problem of our sinful hearts. It's like trying to stop a tank with a BB gun. You can't. Well, okay, so then how do you stop the indulgence of the flesh? Well, I think the answer is what Paul says back in verse 20. He says, with Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world. With Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world. So the way to stop the indulgence of the flesh is by living out the reality of having died with Christ and having died to the world. In other words, remember that you are united to Christ. You died with Christ and you have been raised with Christ. And so you must now live out this reality by being captivated and controlled by the beauty of Christ. With Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world. So all you need is Christ. You don't need any of these things. 
And this inward transformation by the Spirit of Christ is how you stop the indulgence of the flesh. Well, more on this later, but let's close with some applications. How can we apply this to our lives? For the first time, I only have one point of application. And the application is this. Beware of legalism. Beware of legalism in your life. Now, I like to present this in two parts. There's a scholar by the name of Daniel Doriani who says that there are many different ways in which the Bible talks about legalism. And so he he divides legalism into several different classifications. So here are two ways we can classify legalism. First, let's talk about what he calls class one legalism. Class one legalism is when salvation is based on our own law keeping rather than the finished work of Christ. When salvation is based on our own law keeping rather than the finished work of Christ. It's when we depend on good works to make us acceptable to God. So a class one legalist believes that they can earn salvation by their obedience. This is the classic definition of a legalist. And it's what Paul was against in Galatians when he tells them, when he accuses them of turning to a different gospel. And it's also what every other religion teaches. But the Bible tells us that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works. Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, a person who believes that works are the ground of their salvation does not understand the gospel. And so if this is you, please know that you're not trusting in Christ. And because you're not trusting in Christ, you can only expect condemnation from God. So I plead with you, come to Christ. Lay down your works and come to Christ. Come to Christ by simply believing the gospel. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to live a perfect life. And he died on a cross for our sins. And he rose from the dead, triumphant over sin and death. Forgiveness of sins and a right standing with God comes by faith alone, through him alone. So come to Christ, but don't come with your works. Come with empty hands and say this, as we sang earlier, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior, or I die. Come to the fountain that is Jesus Christ. Let's talk about class two legalism. Here's a definition by theologian Sam Storms. He says that class two legalism is when we regard as divine law things which God has neither required nor forbidden. When we regard as divine law things which God has neither required or forbidden, nor forgiven, forbidden. And what goes along with that is the tendency to judge people who don't comply with our rules, right? So, so I create rules that are not from the Bible, and then I'll judge you if you don't live by them. Now, a class two legalist can believe that salvation is by grace through faith. So they don't necessarily believe that they're saved by works. So you see, you can be a Christian and still struggle with class two legalism. In other words, you're not a legalist in the classic sense, but since you measure spirituality with man-made rules, you're still guilty of legalism. This is what Paul is mainly dealing with here in Colossians. So here's the application. 
Beware of passing judgment on the basis of rules that go beyond Scripture. Beware of passing judgment on the basis of rules that go beyond Scripture. For example, the Bible says, do not get drunk with wine. Right? Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But for legalists, do not get drunk becomes don't drink at all. Right? Don't drink or else you're in sin. So you see, that's creating a rule that is, that is not in Scripture. Here are some other examples. There are Christians who believe that it's always sinful, always sinful to listen to secular music. That the only music you can listen to is Christian music. There are others who say that it's sinful if you don't homeschool. You're not allowed to send your children to school. You must homeschool. There are also people who say that it's sinful to celebrate Christmas. That Christmas is a pagan holiday which should not be celebrated in any way if you are a Christian. And there's so many more examples. What about dress code on Sundays? Is anybody wearing jeans? Just kidding. (laughs) What about dancing? Watching movies? Or having percussion in worship music? You know, there's, there's been at least two or three times people have emailed us complaining about why we have Percussion in our worship music. But what's the common thread? The common thread is judging people on the basis of rules that are not in Scripture. Now, of course, you can you have the freedom to live this way if you want. Right? Especially if you struggle with a particular sin. Right? Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So if you struggle, for example, with with drinking, if you struggle with drunkenness, you should abstain from drinking. But Even if you don't struggle, you can still abstain. You're free to do that. Uh, You can abstain from drinking. You can be the Grinch during Christmas. And and you can also, uh, you know, refuse to watch any movies. You're free to do that. But don't think you're either more holy or more spiritual because of these practices. And don't impose your choices on others and then pass judgment. So beware of passing judgment on the basis of rules that go beyond Scripture. Now, you know, the danger of reacting against legalism, I think, is that it creates a tendency to embrace lawlessness, right? So, so we tend to swing to the other side of the pendulum where we don't want to obey God at all. We don't obey what is explicitly in Scripture. So you see, the cure for legalism is not lawlessness. And the cure for lawlessness is not to be legalistic. The cure for both is Christ. That is the message of Colossians. That Jesus is sufficient for living the Christian life, even when it comes to our holiness. Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers once said that the best way to overcome sin is not with more morality, and it's not with more self-discipline, but the best way to overcome sin is by seeing the beauty and the excellence of Christ. He says that Christians overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, namely Jesus Christ. This is what Chalmers called the expulsive power of a greater affection. And the main idea is that when Christ consumes a believer's life, when Jesus becomes the ruling desire of our hearts, lesser affections will be expelled. He says, and I quote, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection, of a sinful affection, is by the expulsive power of a new affection. So according to Chalmers, and I think according to the Bible, that's how you conquer sin. When you replace sinful desires with a greater affection for Christ. 
A Christian is someone who says, I don't want sin because I want Christ. The cure is Christ, not legalism. It's not legalism, it's not asceticism, and it's not about angels and visions. The cure is Christ. So, brothers and sisters, what does a good Christian look like? A good Christian is simply someone who loves Jesus, and it shows by the way they live their lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is everything we need. Forgive us for misunderstanding at times what the Christian life is all about. Forgive us for going back to our old ways, our old patterns of living on the basis of externals rather than depending on the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. So God, help us to rightly assess ourselves and help us to rightly assess others through the lens of the grace of God in Jesus. Help us to not be legalistic and help us to not be lawless. Help us to be all about Jesus. Give us the grace to hold fast to Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.